President Biden is expected to focus on Russia's invasion of Ukraine today with a major speech before Polish lawmakers in Warsaw. It's Tuesday, February 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, how India's decision not to criticize Russia's invasion is affecting global politics. Also this hour, we hear from Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders on his new book called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. We live in the richest country in the history of the world. And you got over 60% of the people living paycheck to paycheck. And Massachusetts-based colleagues of the late global health pioneer, Dr. Paul Farmer, try to carry on his work one year after his death. I really miss just knowing that Paul is out there, challenging the status quo and paving a way for us to do our work. Some rain and snow this morning and then again overnight. High today near 40. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Korva Coleman. Russian President Vladimir Putin has concluded his State of the Nation address. This was a fiercely anti-Western speech full of nationalism and blame for the West and its support for Ukraine. Friday marks the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Speaking through an interpreter, Putin claimed, without evidence, that NATO planned to send Ukraine weapons long before the war started. Western academies and schools trained officers of nationalist squads and supplied arms. I want to emphasize that even before the start of the special military operation, talks were already underway between Kyiv and the West about supplying air defense systems, fighter jets and other heavy weaponry. We remember the Kyiv regime's struggles to get nuclear weapons. They were public about it. That's courtesy of the BBC. Meanwhile, President Biden is getting ready to speak in Poland shortly. He's meeting today with Polish leaders on his European trip. The visit to Poland was long planned, but Biden's trip yesterday to Ukraine was unannounced. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports Biden took two journalists with him to Kyiv. Just one print reporter and one photographer traveled the entire journey with the president from Washington to Kyiv. They were not allowed to share details of the trip until Biden arrived safely back in Poland. Biden left Washington in the early hours of Sunday morning on Air Force One and arrived at a train station in Poland just across the border from western Ukraine on Sunday night local time. The president, White House staff and the two journalists then embarked on a 10-hour train ride through the night to Kyiv. After meeting with Ukrainian President Zelensky, Biden returned to Poland the same way he came. On Tuesday, he's meeting with Polish President Andrzej Duda. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. Voters in Wisconsin go to the polls today to cast ballots in a primary election for a seat on the state Supreme Court. From member station WUWM, Chuck Quirmbach reports a ban on almost all abortions in the state of Wisconsin could be at stake. A conservative justice is retiring from the Wisconsin Supreme Court, giving liberals their best chance in more than a decade to take control of the seven-member panel. Later this year, the high court may have to rule on a challenge by Democrats to an abortion ban passed in 1849. University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee political scientist Kathleen Dolan says abortion rights will continue to be a major issue in the court race. If the Supreme Court is going to be involved in that, uh, I think we're going to hear a lot about it. Two liberals and two conservative candidates are running in today's nonpartisan primary. The general election is in April. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in Milwaukee. 
And you're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss is in Taiwan. He and a group of other U.S. lawmakers met this morning with the country's president, Tsai Ing-wen. Tsai promised to deepen military, military cooperation between the two countries. That's despite objections from China, which claims Taiwan as its own territory. Small farmers in Massachusetts say they are struggling to deal with global problems like inflation and the avian flu. Both of those have caused egg prices to fluctuate. They're just coming down from a spike earlier this year. Susan Murray is the director of the nonprofit Southeastern Massachusetts Agricultural Partnership. She's also the owner of Flying Carrot Farm in Dartmouth. Everything went up um, last year. So we're seeing, you know, 30% increase in prices overall on our farm, whether it's the egg production or the vegetables. And we can only raise our prices so much. Last week, Senator Elizabeth Warren called on agriculture executives to explain rising egg prices. The latest state public health data show 62 percent of Massachusetts residents have received a COVID vaccine booster. But that number is sharply lower for people under 20. That's part of the reason why the city of Springfield is hosting a COVID vaccination clinic today. It's geared toward younger people who need a shot. State Representative Bud Williams helped organize the event as part of the Black Springfield COVID-19 Coalition. He says poor communities and communities of color continue to see high COVID levels three years into the pandemic. But it's all relative. Within the black and brown communities, we still have higher rates of COVID. So it's our job to see if we can continue to get people to see the value of, of taking the shots. State data show Hispanic and American Indian residents have the lowest vaccination rates. The Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston is gearing up for a busy school vacation week. Jessie Mew Magyar leads family and school programs at the ICA. She says the galleries will be open for the week along with the lab where kids can make art themselves. And I think especially for some of our youngest viewers, it's a vital way of learning. It's a way to use your hands, to play with materials, to engage other senses, and to also engage with each other. Magyar says the museum is expecting about 6,000 visitors for school vacation week. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Bruins beat the Ottawa Senators 3-1 to yesterday at the Garden. The Bees' next game is Thursday when they'll visit the Seattle Kraken. Rain and snow across the area this morning. Most of that snow will not stick. After that, it'll be cloudy with a high around 40. Some rain and snow again this evening. Areas north and west of 495 could get an inch. The low will be around 30. Increasing clouds tomorrow with snow and sleet in the evening. The high tomorrow will be in the mid-40s. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskip. And I'm Leila Faldel. President Biden is in Poland today, where he'll be giving a speech at the site of the historic royal castle. Biden spoke near this very same site last year at the start of Russia's war in nearby Ukraine. Now he's back and asserting that after a year of war, the cause of democracy has only grown stronger. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid joins us now from Warsaw. Good morning, Asma. Good morning, Leila. Okay, so it's a bit of a strange split screen today. You have the president of the U.S. speaking on democracy in Poland, and then hundreds of miles away in Russia, Vladimir Putin is making a case for Russians to oppose this Western order, right? It is, I will say, a bit of a disconnect, right? I mean, the White House believes that the world is at a critical moment in this big battle between authoritarianism and democracy. Biden himself last year in Poland described this as a fight between a rules-based order and brute force. And he sees Putin's invasion of Ukraine as part of that broader struggle. I just got off a call that White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan held with reporters, and he said that the president intends today to put the Ukraine war in a larger context, that the President's speech will make the case that democracies have grown stronger over the course of the last year. Um, Biden is also expected to touch on Russian brutality in the war. And over the weekend, the U.S. formally accused Russia of committing crimes against humanity in a speech that Vice President Kamala Harris delivered Mm. at the Munich Security Conference. You know, I will say it is noteworthy that Biden is returning to the very scene where he tried to rally the world for this fight about a year ago. Uh, You know, here we are back in Poland on the eastern flank of NATO, and the war is continuing to rage on. Yeah. And a year in, the U.S. has provided a lot of support, more than $112 billion to Ukraine. What else is Biden pledging at this point? Well, when he went to Kiev yesterday, he announced an additional half a billion dollars of military aid. The Biden administration is also announcing new sanctions against Russia. It is worth pointing out that Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has asked the U.S. for F-16s, but the Biden White House to date has been non-committal about sending those warplanes. You know, throughout this conflict, the White House has been cautious about supplying more military equipment that it fears could potentially escalate the conflict. But some experts and some lawmakers say that time is very critical. Uh, Yesterday, in fact, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham issued a statement praising Biden for making that secret trip to Ukraine. He said that it sent the right signal at the right time. But he also said words must be followed by powerful actions. And he called on the White House to provide Ukraine with advanced fighter jets. Mm. Now, this trip has been quite the statement. I mean, like you mentioned, Biden just showing up in Kyiv in this surprise visit. Tell us a bit about how that happened and the message he was sending. You know, it was a real logistical challenge. Uh, Biden took a train overnight from Poland into Kiev. It was about some 10 hours each way. And, you know, we're told from the White House that this plan for the trip was going on for some months. Uh, One key difficulty is that this covert trip was not like the ones that former presidents have taken into U.S. war zones like Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, the U.S. does not have boots on the ground in Ukraine. It doesn't control the critical infrastructure. So it was risky. Uh, And and in an attempt to reduce risk. The White House says it gave Russia a heads up that Biden would make this trip. You know, I will say fundamentally that trip to Ukraine, also the big speech here in Poland today, all of this is about sending a message to Russians and Ukrainians, of course, but it's also about sending a message to European allies and American voters at home that the U.S. will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. NPR's Asma Khalid in Warsaw. Thanks, Asma. Happy to do it. The chemical smell that lingers around East Palestine, Ohio, has added to the pressure for authorities to respond. The EPA says the air is safe 
after a train derailment, while some residents have insisted they're getting sick. Beyond that is the question of how a train carrying chemicals went off the tracks in the first place. In a letter, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is questioning the actions of the railroad Norfolk Southern, and Secretary Buttigieg is on the line. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. So you assert that Norfolk Southern needs to do more to support the community. What exactly are they failing to do? Well, uh, the biggest thing that I want to see from Norfolk Southern is a change in their posture toward rail safety. The rail industry has vigorously resisted so many rules and efforts to raise the bar on safety. Now, I want to be clear. The investigation into root causes is being led by the National Transportation Safety Board. NTSB is independent with good reason, and we will know more when they issue their final report. But it is not too soon to push toward a change in how industry approaches safety. And that's exactly what we're calling for today. Although, Actions, you, as you point out in your letter, there is another agency, a regulatory agency, that's under your purview that is looking into this. Do you have reason to think that some deficiency of regulation is connected to this crash? Again, I won't get ahead of NTSB, but there are some things we know are the right thing to do for rail safety. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, right now, we are in the middle of a process of driving uh, railroad companies and chemical companies to phase in safer tank cars to carry hazardous materials. Now, uh, the, under uh, the Obama administration, a rule went in to get this done by 2025. Uh, with uh, pressure from the rail industry lobby, Congress pushed that date out to 2029. I think that we should move that date back up. That's just one example of something that even as we wait for the NTSB's results, we know is the right thing to do. Another thing I think is really important right now is to make sure that we have enough teeth on our enforcement actions. Right now, for the most egregious kind of violation, violations involving hazardous materials that lead to a fatality, the most that my department can find per violation is about $225,000. For a multi-billion dollar company like Norfolk Southern or any of the major freight railroad companies, that is just not enough to have a deterrent effect. So that's something I want Congress to work with us on to raise that cap so that th this can make a difference. You, indicate, is, you, you indicate in your letter, Mr. Secretary, that you've already been talking uh, with the head of Norfolk Southern. What are you hearing from them? Look, they have uh, indicated and claimed that they will do uh, everything they can to make it right with the people of East Palestine, and uh, they need to be held to that. Uh, I will make sure uh, that there is accountability for any and all uh, violations of safety standards that may have gone into this. Uh, the EPA, I know, is holding them to their responsibilities on the cleanup. But I also want to make sure in this moment that we raise the bar on rail safety generally as a country. That's why we have a three-part drive going on right now, things we're doing as a department, things that we need Congress to help with, and things that the rail industry should do right away. Let's you know, there's a if I There's might, a pro if yeah, I, forgive me, I, I, while in the time we have left, yeah. I want to talk about something that's a little more immediate. We have reported on Norfolk Southern's response to this, this crash. Uh, representatives from the railroad missed a community meeting. The CEO did show up a couple of days later, has been in touch with the community. But at that meeting, very notably, residents said they were getting sick. They have continued to get sick, even though the EPA, the federal government, says that things should be safe, that there is not enough concentration of chemicals in the air for people to be getting sick. I recognize the EPA is outside of your department, but you're the representative of the administration here. Is the administration doing enough for the people of East Palestine? 
Well, the people of East Palestine are right to be concerned. They're understandably concerned. If you have something like this happen in your community, then you're going to ask any time you experience symptoms of, of anything whether that could be connected. Uh, EPA is doing everything to make sure that those residents have access to good testing of air, water, and soil. Uh, I believe the EPA administrator, Michael Regan, uh, who is very focused on this, uh, will be there in the community again today. But this is also why you're now seeing public health teams arrive too with a CDC and HHS presence. Uh, this is an all-hands-on-deck matter where you have multiple federal agencies uh, partnering with uh, state government and local authorities to get these residents everything that they need, and that support is going to continue. You've been very gracious in not calling me out on mispronouncing the name of the town, so I'll call myself out. It's East Palestine, Ohio, and Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Thank he, you. He is the U.S. Secretary of Transportation. Young women are turning up dead in southern Indiana, and the killer is leaving behind clues, stone figurines. This at least is the premise of a popular book. We do not say it's a popular new book because it first came out 11 years ago. The sudden popularity of this story is a story in itself and begins with the author. I'm Lloyd Devereux Richards, the author of Stone Maidens. Richards was inspired by real-life unsolved crimes that he heard about years ago while studying law in Indiana, so he tried to launch a second career. I was a full-time corporate lawyer, and my daughter and son would often watch me in the attic where I worked on, you know, evenings and weekends, learning how to write a novel. It's the fate of many books. Publishers never really know what novels will catch fire until they do. But Richard's daughter, Marguerite, didn't accept that. It made me sad. I knew he was a beautiful writer. And what really touched me was he continued to write. And he wrote a couple books after that. And in my mind, I was like, what a strong person when no one's buying the first book to just keep going and never complain and stay positive. And that just really made a big impression on me. So a decade after that first novel, she produced a TikTok video to promote her father's book. Nobody can predict what takes off on social media either, but this did. Beautiful, 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 beautiful I was like, maybe if I made a video where people could see his book, people would read it. And when I woke up in the morning, the video had 700,000 views and he had like, a thousand or two thousand followers. I actually cried. I couldn't believe that it went that viral. That video now has over 47 million views. And Lloyd Roberts' book is a bestseller. I'm just amazed. I feel like I've won the lottery. I really do. There's no other comparison. I, I've had never had anything like this happen to me in my life. We're a really good team and we, we're taking care of each other and we're just trying to have as much fun as we can because this is incredible. We were always close and this is just like bringing us even closer. Lloyd is once again writing in the attic, prepping a sequel. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the role India is playing in Russia's war in Ukraine. The Indian government hasn't criticized Moscow's actions and continues to buy Russian gas. It's at the 19. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. 
Mornings are dark this time of year, and the news can feel that way too. Morning Edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. Commuter rail service south of Boston is getting back to normal this morning. Earlier, a downed wire was slowing trains on the Franklin Foxborough and Providence Stoughton lines. But the MBTA says that problem has been fixed, although there may be some minor lingering delays. A chance of snow and rain early this morning. No accumulation is expected. It should become all rain by mid-morning, otherwise cloudy with a high near 38. Tonight, more rain and a low around 32. Tomorrow, cloudy and a high near 44. Rain and snow possible Wednesday night. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at z and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. It's been nearly a year to the day since Russia invaded Ukraine. Western democracies have condemned Moscow, cut back on Russian gas, and sent weapons to help Ukraine defend itself. But the world's biggest democracy, India, has not done any of that. From Mumbai, NPR's Lauren Freyer explains. Two Russians were found dead in a span of four days in the... A spate of mysterious deaths of Russian citizens in India around Christmas. One of them was a Russian lawmaker who'd criticized the Ukraine war. That fueled conspiracy theories about Russian assassins on Indian soil. Nothing was proven, but it left some Indians asking how much they trust Moscow. The answer, historically, has been a whole lot, says Raji Rajagopalan, a political scientist at the Observer Research Foundation in Delhi. The India-Russia relationship goes way back, she notes. It started out in the backdrop of India gaining independence from the British, so it's anti-colonial, which also translated to pro-Soviet sympathies. And as the Cold War picked up, it became more anti-West. The end of the Cold War did not change that. Neither has the Ukraine war. India's nationalist TV news channels accuse the U.S. of doing more to ruin Ukraine. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has called for a ceasefire in Ukraine. But Praveen Chakravarti, a political economist affiliated with the opposition Congress party, says, look at India's actions rather than its words. The actions that India is engaged in so far do not reflect any remorse or 
even mild criticism of the events in Ukraine. If anything, it seems to aid and abet. Modi's government has doubled down on buying Russian oil at bargain prices, much to Washington's chagrin. And his foreign minister, S. Jai Shankar, visited Moscow in November, where he said, For us, Russia has been a steady and time-tested partner. A partner not only for oil, which relatively poor India desperately needs, but perhaps more importantly, for weapons. India's military uses Russian equipment, mostly from that Cold War period. And some of it is deteriorating, says Aparna Pandey, a political scientist at the Hudson Institute in Washington. Let's just go to the Air Force. Most of those Sukhois and MiGs are referred to as flying coffins. Very often Indian pilots die when they are testing or flying those. Indian defense experts may be the only ones who were not surprised to see Russian tanks falling apart in Ukraine. They've been unhappy with Russian weapons for years. The Indian government has started replacing them with French, Israeli, American weapons. But it's tricky, Pandey says. Let's say my entire apartment had only IKEA furniture. And now I decide, okay, now I want to change it and I want West Elm. I cannot just replace one chair, right? I have to change my entire dining table and all the chairs. So what India has done is piecemeal. But those big ticket items are still Russian made. And so that's the change which has to happen. Only then, she says, might Russia's influence over India wane. Now, there's one big reason India needs all these weapons, and that is China. India shares a more than 2,000-mile border with China. Satellite imagery shows China may be encroaching on Indian territory. Soldiers have clashed there in recent years. And as the West isolates Russia, India fears that Vladimir Putin may increasingly look eastward. You've already seen a very close Russia-China relationship emerging even in the last few years. Again, that's political scientist Raji Rajagopalan who says that's a concern for the U.S. and for India. We don't want Russia to go completely into the Chinese fold because for India, China has become the number one national security threat. And despite the Ukraine war, that's still true for the U.S. too. So even if the Biden administration doesn't like it, it understands why India has not condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it may even see India's ties with Putin as useful to try to help mitigate just how far this war drives him into Xi Jinping's arms. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Mumbai. In this country, new forensic techniques are making it easier to detect bruises on people with darker skin. This might help victims of assault and domestic violence find justice. Here's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Catherine Scafidi worked as a forensic nurse for eight years. She noticed something about survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence with black or brown skin. It was hard to see their injuries. Bruises tell us a lot about what has happened to a particular patient who's experienced violence. And unfortunately, if I can't see the bruise, clearly it really limits my ability of what to document and what to report in the medical record. That medical record often becomes evidence for criminal investigators. Scafidi and her team at George Mason University found that blue or purple light is much better at detecting bruises on those patients. The Justice Department is praising the work as a model of inclusive research. Nancy Levine directs the National Institute of Justice, which funded the study. 
I think this speaks to the embedded racial disparities in a lot of the research we do to date, that all of these methodologies that were so traditional were developed to identify bruises on white skin. The research continues. Scafidi is now developing a set of guidelines for forensic nurses to use. Nancy Downing's a professor of forensic nursing at Texas A&M University. It's really important to me that we are not promoting something to be used without people understanding how to use it correctly. Downing says juries want to see evidence of injuries, but she says there need to be scientifically validated standards for using these technologies to help prevent wrongful convictions. Chris Fabricant agrees. Fabricant's a lawyer at the Innocence Project. He welcomes rigorous testing of some of these methods and says it's important to develop objective standards for evaluating bruises. The use on the front end of unreliable or untested forensic evidence to secure convictions makes it really almost impossible to undo miscarriages of justice unless you have conclusive DNA. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up here on Morning Edition, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders talks about his new book in which he argues that capitalism is undermining democracy and causing unprecedented wealth inequality. It's 729. Check back with WBUR throughout the day to keep up to date on the news. If you can't listen to the radio at 90.9, there's always WBUR.org or the WBUR mobile app. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden is in Poland today. He'll talk about the war in Ukraine and the security of NATO's eastern flank. In Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin addressed his parliament and military and announced his departure from a critical nuclear arms treaty. NPR's Charles Maines has more. He delivered a surprise at the end. Uh, oh, by the way, Russia is suspending its participation in the New START nuclear arms treaty. Putin insisted that Russia was suspending not leaving. Talks between the U.S. and Russia to extend the treaty really had been stumbling of late. Russia had been linking progress on the talks to the U.S. really pulling back on its involvement in Ukraine. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Social media platforms are poised to start charging users for extra account security. Facebook and Instagram will charge about $12 a month to get verified. Wall Street Journal reporter Tim Higgins predicts this will take the edge off viral content. One of the things, though, it seems as if it will help perhaps uh, content creators in part because of the verification, but also the company is saying that it will increase their postings, prominence in, in areas such as search and recommendations. And all of a sudden, we're kind of changing the paradigm for social media. Previously, it was all about creating cool content that went viral. And now you can almost pay to play. The meta verification service is similar to one unveiled recently by Twitter. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. 
Community land trusts are nonprofits that buy properties to keep them affordable in perpetuity. Advocates say they want to expand the model in Massachusetts amid skyrocketing housing prices. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. Some community land trusts offer cheaper homes for sale, while others offer low rent. Lydia Lowe of the Chinatown Community Land Trust says extremely high property values make it difficult to compete with high bidders. For now, they own just two buildings, but she's hoping that will change. It's been really crazy trying to acquire other properties in this last few years, but I think that, you know, with the higher interest rates and the economic situation, we may be entering a period where there's going to be less of that competition. Advocates are calling on the state to begin funding community land trusts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. White people are now more likely to die from COVID in Massachusetts than people of color. New research from the Boston Globe shows that changing infection rates may contribute to those numbers. More black and Hispanic people died earlier in the pandemic while working frontline jobs. But researchers say more white people are heading to the office or taking off their masks as pandemic restrictions ease. Secretary of State Bill Galvin is serving as acting governor until Thursday. It's the first time he's stepping into that role since Governor Moore Healy took office. Both Healy and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll are out of the state for school vacation week. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Bruins won their fourth straight game yesterday. They beat the Ottawa Senators 3-1 to at the Garden. The Bees will begin a four-game Western road trip on Thursday when they play the Seattle Kraken. A chance of snow for the next few hours with no accumulation expected. Then showers are likely, rain showers are likely throughout the early afternoon. Clouds and patchy fog in the late afternoon. Temperatures will rise to a high in the upper 30s. Tonight, more rain and fog possible with temperatures falling to the low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy and a high in the low 40s. There's a good chance of a rain-snow mix on Wednesday night. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Senator Bernie Sanders is embracing his anger. He's shown a lot of it during more than 30 years in Congress. In the 1990s, he attacked both parties for their defense spending. I know you're upset about it. I know you're hoping and praying that maybe we'll have another war. Maybe somebody will rise up. But it ain't happening. In 2015, he began seeking the Democratic nomination for president. And Sanders told me then that people should not be afraid because he calls himself a Democratic Socialist. I don't want to get people nervous falling off their chairs, but Social Security is a socialist program. When Donald Trump won the presidency, Sanders noted that even Trump promised to preserve that program. Yes, you're damn right we're going to hold him accountable and remind him of what he said. 
He could also challenge people on the political left when they insisted the Democrats say Black Lives Matter. Because it's too easy for quote-unquote liberals to be saying, well, let's use this phrase. Well, what are we going to do about 51% of young African-Americans unemployed? Now Bernie Sanders has written a book about his recent campaigns and legislation. He titled it, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. When we spoke, he traced that anger to his childhood in Brooklyn in the 1940s and 50s. There was a lot of stress uh, in the house over money. Often there would be arguments, my mother would like to do this or that, and we just didn't have enough money to do that. You know, it's not that we were living in desperate poverty, we were not. My father worked every day of his life and made a living. But economically, we were not going anywhere. My mother had a dream. Uh, it doesn't sound terribly radical now. She wanted to own her own home. Mm-hmm. Uh, she died young, and she never, we never achieved that dream. We lived in a, a rent-controlled apartment for my whole youth. Is that where your anger comes from? You put anger right in the title of your book. It's what it is understanding that we live in the richest country in the history of the world. And you got over 60% of the people living paycheck to paycheck. The socialist senator from Vermont aligns with Democrats. He was an important voice in the first two years of President Biden's administration, though he gives the Democratic Congress of those years a mixed record. He was proud of the American Rescue Plan responding to the pandemic. But I was bitterly disappointed in Build Back Better. What many of us said is okay. And the president said, we dealt with the emergency. Let's deal with the structural crises facing America. Our child care system is a disaster. Our health care system is dysfunctional. Kids can't afford to go to college. Let's deal with the existential threat of climate change. Let's deal with income and wealth inequality. We came within two votes of legislation which would have been transformative for the working families. Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. That's correct. Senator Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Sinema of Arizona enraged Democrats by blocking sweeping social legislation. Though Manchin later negotiated a smaller version, Sanders still labels both corporate Democrats. These are folks who got a whole lot of money from wealthy people and large corporations, and they do their bidding. I was going to ask if you're still angry at someone like Joe Manchin. It sounds like you are. From his perspective, he's representing a very conservative state that votes for Republicans for president hugely and needs to bring them something that they can believe in. Do you sympathize with his political situation? No. In 2016, when I was running for president, I won a landslide victory in West Virginia. In the Democratic primary? In a Democratic primary. But there's but, a general election. I understand. But the issue is, and again, I don't want to get into West Virginia politics. In my view, politicians do well, and West Virginia is one of the poorest states in America. In my view, politicians do well when they stand up and fight for working people. You write about the working class. I made a note here, page 286. You can't win elections without the overwhelming support of the working class. It seems that many Republicans now agree with you and openly court the working class and get a lot of working class votes. Why do you think that is? Well, that is an enormously important political issue. That is the most important political question of our time. But what I think has happened over the years, and this is no great secret, As a result of a lot of corporate contributions, the Democratic Party has kind of turned its back on the needs of working class people. And then you have a a gap there where you have people like Trump coming along and saying, you know what the problem is? It's immigrants. It's gays. It's transgender people. And they get people angry around those issues rather than Democrats saying, I'll tell you what the problem is. The problem is the wealthy are getting richer 
Corporations have enormous power. We're going to take them on and create a nation that works for you, not the 1%. Your Republican colleague Marco Rubio of Florida talks a lot about the working class, alleges that Democrats have turned against the working class. And if I were going to summarize his critique, I might say um, that Democrats, in his view, are overwhelmingly concerned with the worries of college-educated affluent liberals and have forgotten about ordinary people. Is he right? What the polls tell us, and and what exit polls tell us, which is very sad to me, is white working class people voting Republicans. And you're seeing Latinos more and more voting Republicans. You're seeing more black men voting Republican. And that bothers me. As somebody who is of the work, a son of the working class, that bothers me that that is happening. Let's talk about what you think you can get done in this Congress, this particular Congress. People will know you're the chairman of a powerful committee that oversees health care and, and other issues. You can try to move legislation through there, but you have the Senate that you have and a Republican House, a closely divided but Republican House. What do you think is something that you could make law in the next two years? I'll tell you, we had a hearing just uh, the other day. There are obviously what I want to see, a Medicare for all system, ain't going to happen. No Republicans support it. Half the Democrats won't support it. But this is what we can do. We can expand primary health care and community health centers to every region of the country. I've worked very hard on this issue with some success. We now have 30 million people accessing community health centers in my state of Vermont, leading the country one-third of our people. What does that mean? Federal subsidies. Well, these are federal programs. You walk into a community health center... You get affordable health care, dental care. Dental care is a big issue. Mental health counseling and low-cost prescription drugs. Republicans understand that in red states, it is very hard often for people to access a doctor. Sanders believes that some rural Republicans will support expanding those health centers. And this may be the most interesting side of Bernie Sanders. Though he stands out because of his socialism, his politics depend in part on his pragmatism. Even though you say it's okay to be angry about capitalism, there's a place for capitalism in the world as you Yes, there is. Yes, there is. If you made all the rules, there would still be large corporations. Well, I don't know about that. But look, there's nothing in that book to suggest that it is bad for people to go out and start a business to come up with innovation. That's great. That's good. What is bad is when a handful of corporations control sector after sector. I feel like there are a lot of Republicans who are trying to pick up on that theme. They've got their own approach to it. They talk about the social power of corporations as much as the financial power of corporations. But do you see some common ground there? Well, I think what they sense correctly is a dissatisfaction on the part of the working class of this country. Senator Bernie Sanders is the author of It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Senator, thanks for coming by. Well, thank you for having me. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up next on Morning Edition, why hybrid vehicles remain more popular than all-electric vehicles. And in our next hour, tips on reclaiming social connections in the workplace post-pandemic. Winter weather returns today. We may see some snow in the next few hours, but not enough for any accumulation. Then rain likely mid-morning into early afternoon. After that, cloudy with temperatures in the upper 30s. Tonight, a good chance of more rain. It'll be in the low 30s. Tomorrow, clouds move in throughout the day, and we'll have temperatures in the low 40s. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston at 743. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. Now in business news, a biotech startup with operations in Cambridge says it raised $135 million for its blood disorder therapies. Hemab Therapeutics says the money will fund clinical studies for its first two drugs. Hemab's CEO says the work means the company plans to hire more people at its Cambridge facilities. Coca-Cola says it plans to keep its factory in Northampton open through at least the rest of this year and is even hiring new workers there. That's despite an announcement in 2021 that it planned to close the plant by this summer. Coke tells Mass Live it is being transparent with new applicants about the plant's impending closure, but it did not give a reason for the delay. The Fenway Concert Series will have a new corporate sponsor this year. The Boston Business Journal reports it will be known as the New Car Fenway Concert Series. The Norwood Auto Dealer replaces the sponsorship previously held by Plain Ridge Park Casino. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, featuring wines from around the world with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org radio. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Hybrid vehicles, you know, the ones that use both gas and electricity, do not get a ton of attention these days because everybody's talking about pure electric vehicles. But hybrids remain more popular than EVs. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports. At the DC Auto Show last month, Mason Bond said his favorite car was the Toyota Future car. It recognizes your personality with artificial intelligence. So whatever mood you're in, the car will ask you if they if they could drive you. AI, it's everywhere these days. But his grandpa Steve was checking out something less whiz-bang. Call it the Toyota Today car, a hybrid Highlander. I think it's time to go from straight gasoline to a hybrid model for the better mileage. Nearby, Carla Grinnell was also planning to check out the latest and greatest tech. And I think there's a BMW here that changes colors. I don't know, is that a real thing? Have you heard of that? Real thing. But when it comes to the next car that Grinnell will consider buying, it won't change colors, it won't read minds, and it probably won't have a plug. Hybrids would be nice to afford. Like kind of like the Prius, that sort of hybrid. These old school kind of hybrids are still popular. In fact, much more popular than electric vehicles. Michelle Krebs is with Cox Automotive. About 11% of all new car shoppers look at EVs. 
about 20% shop for hybrids. Right now, lots of those shoppers wind up disappointed. For both hybrids and electric vehicles, demand outstrips supply right now. But it shows that a lot of people want hybrids, including people who say they would eventually like to have an electric vehicle. And it's not just because hybrids tend to be a lot cheaper. There's still people who have trepidation about range anxiety and charging and that kind of thing with EVs. And so they they see hybrids is a stepping stone. Apartment dwellers might not have a place to charge at home. Or take Steve Bond. He says, sure, he'd drive an EV someday. But not yet. As for why, he said road trips. Availability of charging stations, or I should say lack of. Meanwhile, hybrid shoppers also have a lot more options these days. The Prius got a sportier redesign, still gets 57 miles to the gallon, but there are also hybrid SUVs and trucks, like Toyota's hybrid RAV4, 41 miles to the gallon, and the Ford Maverick pickup, which gets 42 miles to the gallon, or if you're looking for something sportier... The new Corvette E-Ray has a big beast of a gas engine in the back. And an electric motor about the size of a Folgers coffee can tucked between the front wheels. As for fuel economy, come on, it's a Corvette. Here's Chief Engineer Josh Holder. That's not what this car is about. This is all about enhancing the performance of the Corvette. Performance, as in going hybrid, meant better traction and the fastest Corvette ever, 0 to 60 in 2.5 seconds. So no, hybrids aren't the newest or the hottest technology, but they've moved firmly into the mainstream and they are still very popular. And I probably don't need to tell you that. According to surveys, NPR listeners are twice as likely as the average American to drive a Prius. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Running on electric, this is NPR News. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Rupa, how are you this I'm morning? I'm doing okay. It's nice to see you after this Thanks. long weekend. Yeah, it was nice to have a little bit of a long weekend, and, and the snow today is an interesting return to February, <laughs> like it's, you know, supposed to be. So <laughs> <laughs> It's a diplomatic way to say it. Yeah, yeah that's right. So listen, I've got, we, we're doing a number of things on the show today, but the one I, I really want to emphasize is with a local professor, his name is Jerry. Givens. He's got a new book called School Clothes, a collective memoir of black student witness. Mm. And what it is, is a fascinating look over really the 1800s and into the mid 20th century, at least, of of what an act of resistance uh, and defiance it was for black kids in America to go to school. Hmm. Um, And he collects these incredible stories from all over the country, including famous Bostonians, you know, Charlotte Fortin, Phyllis Wheatley, Henry Louis Gates. uh, And it really puts in perspective, I think at a depth that is quite different, what it really meant to go to school uh, and the political battleground and the racial battleground that schooling itself has been in the country. Hmm. So a really, really interesting conversation. And then tomorrow, Attorney General Andrea Campbell will be with us. Very interesting. Yep. So lots there, too. Yeah. I have some follow-up questions after that recent Globe story. Yeah. 
Thanks, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.51. WBUR supporters include Clark, where you can begin your kitchen project by exploring Sub-Zero and Wolf Appliances. Details about showrooms in Boston and Milford at ClarkLiving.com. A former U.S. Marine turned frontline humanitarian medic was killed by a Russian missile this month in Ukraine. He was very happy to be going over, and one of the things that he said is, I'm excited to prove my worth again. He chose to go to the hottest spot on the front line. This is the thing to admire. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We remember Pete Reed on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. This is W.B. Moore's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. One year ago today, Dr. Paul Farmer died. Farmer was a co-founder of the Boston-based global health organization Partners in Health. He was also a medical anthropologist affiliated with Harvard University for nearly 40 years. Farmer died unexpectedly in Rwanda, one of the many countries where he worked caring for patients facing poverty and disease. A year after his death, Farmer's work continues. This morning, three of his colleagues share what his loss has meant to them and how they are moving forward. When I think about Paul, my mind, it wanders to a few different places consistently. You know, some are just his voice in my ear calling me to action. And I also just have memories of Paul and his hilarious sense of humor. Paul was really very funny, so I think a lot of him laughing, making jokes. I'm Dr. Louise Ivers. I'm an infectious diseases doctor at Harvard and Mass General Hospital. I worked with Paul for about 20 years. He was my mentor. He was my boss. I really miss just knowing that Paul is out there, just knowing that Paul is audaciously and boldly challenging the status quo and paving a way for us to do our work. I'm connecting a lot with other colleagues who were trainees of his and mentees of his and part of his network and really trying to build bridges across and say, how do we continue this work together without him? My name is Ishan Desai. I'm a first year student at Harvard Medical School. I was Paul Farmer's research assistant for seven years until 2022. During Paul's last two months in Rwanda, he was just so happy. Paul had the chance to spend his last days, um, you know, doing what he loved most, which was caring for patients uh, facing both poverty and disease while teaching future generations how to do so. Happiness for him didn't mean freedom from sorrow or loss. It was rather the act of engaging in caring for others in close proximity to them and direct service to those who suffer most. That's what Paul meant by happiness. And I think that's just a very important lesson for for all of us, not only in, in medicine, but as human beings. An understanding of suffering is important, but it's made more pragmatic and more meaningful when we link that understanding to practical efforts to lessen the suffering. And that's what Paul did, I think, better than anyone and and what he taught many of us. My name's Ophelia Dahl, and I'm a co-founder of Partners in Health. And Paul Farmer was my friend, 
since 1983. There are many memories. When I first moved to Boston in the late 1980s, Paul was in medical school doing rotations at the Boston hospitals. And one day he came home and he told me about a patient who was totally alone, far away from her family and really very sick. And I remember him asking me if I would go and visit her, which I did. I took the tea to Charles Street and I sat with her in the hospital. Paul and I stayed in touch with her and I'm in touch with her still, 40 years later. I really didn't think about it then. I just thought that this was what people did, that you would go and visit someone you didn't know in a hospital and stay in touch with them over decades. That was one of Paul's qualities, a profound and completely natural way of bringing people into the work and not letting go. I know that he has passed that quality on to so many, whether by osmosis, symbiosis, or titration, this connecting to others and holding on. I always think about Paul relentlessly pursuing equity, relentlessly. And sometimes that was what was a challenge to work for Paul because really, like, we could never do enough and he felt like he could never do enough. I do feel like it's a gift that he was so prolific in his writing because honestly, I've been reading his work much more carefully now. Don't tell him. But I've been reading his work much more carefully now that he's not here and that I can't just ask his opinion. Like, I'm not Paul Farmer. I've never been Paul Farmer. But I've always been inspired by Paul Farmer. How can I bring it forward in my own way, with my own personality and my own experiences and what I learned from him and be inspired by him, but bring it forward in, in a new way that's my own way too. He really genuinely believed in a world in which, you know, the poor enjoy access to the best that medicine has to offer. And he genuinely made us believers of it too. But in Paul's physical absence, um, it, it sometimes does seem like I do have to marshal that extra bit of mindfulness to recall that optimism and that imagination, as Paul insisted. Paul could always imagine something where there's nothing. He could go from zero to infinity. And that quality was a big part of how we built a beautiful university in the hills of northern Rwanda. In recent years, Paul and I talked about how he'd most like to spend his time. He told me reading and writing and teaching. And by teaching, he meant spending time with students and colleagues, teasing out the best in them to help this work live on. I think Paul knew he wouldn't live a long life. He knew he wouldn't see all the results of his work. None of us will. But he was joyful about the future. And I see him and his spirit embodied in so many. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. Those remembrances of Dr. Paul Farmer were from Ophelia Dahl, Ishan Desai, and Dr. Louise Ivers. You can read more reflections on Paul Farmer's life and work at WBUR.org. This piece was produced by Chloe Axelson. 
We're seeing some snow and fog at this hour. That should become rain soon. It'll be near 40 today. It's 35 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu MBA. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In a national address, Russian President Vladimir Putin made false claims that Western countries started the war in Ukraine. President Biden speaks soon in Warsaw. It's Tuesday, February 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, political pressure is growing as fentanyl deaths soar. Some blame Mexico for not going after cartels. It's not our country. It's their country. They've chosen not to go after the drug traffickers. Also this hour, a nonprofit in Boston's Chinatown is buying properties to try to make home ownership affordable. Realistically, I would have either rented for the rest of my life or left the city. And police in Los Angeles have arrested a suspect in the killing of a Catholic bishop who acted as a peacemaker between gangs. Plus, the Supreme Court hears two cases this week that could mean big changes for social media. Snow and rain today in the upper 30s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Korva Coleman. President Biden is in Warsaw, joining Polish President Andrzej Duda for a bilateral meeting. Afterward, he is expected to deliver a strong speech about Western support for Ukraine. The first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is this Friday. And NPR's Asma Khalid says Biden wants to make a strong point about Russian motives. The White House believes that the world is at a critical moment in this big battle between authoritarianism and democracy. Biden himself last year in Poland described this as a fight between a rules-based order and brute force. And he sees Putin's invasion of Ukraine as part of that broader struggle. NPR's Asma Khalid reporting from Warsaw. Meanwhile, earlier today, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave his own fiery speech. He blamed the West for supporting Ukraine and insisted that the West had started the conflict, not Russia. He offered no evidence for his claim. Putin also says that Russia will suspend its participation in the last nuclear arms control pact it has with the United States. Putin insists he is not fully leaving the nuclear treaty. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is calling for stronger regulations on freight trains that haul hazardous materials. That's in response to the fiery derailment of a train hauling toxic chemicals in Ohio earlier this month. NPR's David Shaper has more. Buttigieg wants rail shippers to speed up their phasing in of stronger, more puncture-resistant tank cars for carrying hazardous materials. And he wants Congress to untie the agency's hands and raise the limit on the amount the DOT can fine railroads for safety violations. As for Republicans who have criticized his response to the derailment. I will say I can't help but notice that, that uh, some of the people who uh, hasten to be on TV talking about this have sided with industry. 
when industry was trying to block or weaken uh, rail safety standards. Judge says he will visit the site of the rail disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, but no date has yet been set. David Shaper, NPR News. Jurors in the federal seditious conspiracy trial in Washington, D.C. against leaders of the Proud Boys will hear from a star witness this week. NPR's Kerry Johnson has more about a member of the far-right group who pleaded guilty and agreed to help federal prosecutors. Jeremy Bertino didn't appear at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, but prosecutors say he took part in a chat group where Proud Boys discussed storming the building and told them not to go home or back down. Bertino was stabbed and suffered serious injuries in a street fight in Washington before the attempt to delay certification of the 2020 election. He later pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy and a weapons charge. Bertino's one of three Proud Boys insiders expected to testify in the case against Chairman Henry Enrique Tario, and four others. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The founders of a New Hampshire nonprofit are in Poland to see President Biden's speech later today. The members of Common Man for Ukraine will head into Ukraine later this week to bring a shipment of supplies. Co-founder Susan Matheson says she knows she's heading into a war zone. We understand that we're putting ourselves kind of in a dangerous situation. We also understand that the Ukrainians do that every day. And if that's what we need to do in order to help them, then then we're going to be courageous and do it, too. The shipment of supplies includes food, sleeping bags, clothes and more. It'll go to more than a dozen orphanages in Ukraine. The city of Boston will spend nearly $900,000 to find ways to help Long Wharf deal with the effects of climate change. The Boston Planning and Development Agency says the money will focus on high tides, which are getting higher each year. Those tides can send water over the wharf and also push water out of storm drains. The area also has an emergency exit for the nearby Aquarium Tea Station on the Blue Line. Across New England, the record warmth this winter is making it easier for dozens of species of invasive plants to grow, spread, and thrive. Michaela Savitt reports. Plants are moving up from the southern states through things like bird migration and wind. And Bonnie Burr with Yukon Extension said the plants are now thriving because of warming temperatures, sunlight, and moisture. When growing season gets warmer, gets longer, that just gives our invasive plants a greater opportunity to expand in terms of how they start to get in and grow. We see them become much more dense in terms of how they infiltrate within our native plant populations. Burr said stopping invasive plants from overtaking native plants requires temperatures dropping below freezing for at least 10 days, something we're not seeing this winter. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Michaela Savitt. Thieves have found a new way to get into your locked car to steal your belongings. It has to do with your key fob, the little device that replaces a physical key on a lot of cars. AAA Northeast says thieves are using radio signals from that fob to unlock the doors. Spokesman Mark Shieldrop says to help prevent that, put your fob inside a metal container. Small jewelry box, uh, you know, cigar box or something along those lines of metal lining. Um, you know, if you're creative and handy, you could build something yourself. Shieldrop also recommends making your vehicle less attractive to thieves by not leaving anything of value in plain sight. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. The Bruins beat the Ottawa Senators 3-1 to yesterday at the Garden. The Bees are now off until Thursday. That's when they'll visit the Seattle Kraken. We have rain and snow across the area this morning. Most of that snow will not stick. After that, it'll be cloudy with a high around 40. Some rain and snow again this evening. Areas north and west of 495 could get an inch. The low will be around 30. Increasing clouds tomorrow with snow and sleet in the evening. The high tomorrow will be in the mid-40s. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. On a Tuesday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Russian President Vladimir Putin addressed a joint session of Russia's parliament in a closely watched State of the Union-type speech today in Moscow. The address comes just days before the one-year anniversary of the start of Russia's war in Ukraine, and just hours before President Biden makes his own remarks about the war from nearby Poland. NPR's Charles Maines is in Moscow following along and joins us now. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. Okay, so this was a really anticipated speech. What did Putin say? Putin came out swinging against the West as expected. Uh, He again presented the war in Ukraine as an existential struggle against Western forces intent on dismantling the historical territory of Russia, and by that he means uh, Ukraine. Uh, Moreover, Putin argued that Russia had done everything to try and find a peaceful solution to the crisis in Ukraine, but really had been deceived uh, time and time again by the West, essentially leaving Russia no choice. Let's listen. So here he says, uh, they are the ones who started this war. Uh, Mm. We're the ones trying to end it. Now, surprising here was just how much of the speech then drifted and really stayed focused on domestic issues. Uh, Really, the message, as we said, a kind of State of the Union speech, it was really that Russia's brightest days are ahead of it. Uh, But then he delivered a surprise at the end. Uh, Oh, by the way, Russia is suspending its participation in the New START nuclear arms treaty. Okay, wait a second. Does this mean nuclear arms control is going to end? Well, not quite. Uh, Putin insisted that Russia was suspending, not leaving, that's critical, uh, the New okay. START Treaty, uh, due to actions by the U.S. and European nuclear powers such as France and Great Britain. Uh, now, talks between the U.S. and Russia to extend the treaty, uh, which runs out currently in February 2026, really had been stumbling of late. Uh, Russia had been linking progress on the talks to the U.S. really pulling back an, ins- an involvement in Ukraine. Uh, but certainly this takes us into uncharted territory. And moreover, uh, Putin has assigned his defense ministry to say uh, to prepare, not necessarily carry out, uh, possible nuclear tests. Okay, more uncertainty. What did Putin have to say given the impact of the war at home? What was the domestic message? Well, domestically, again, it was this message that you know, our brightest days are ahead of us. And it, it's surprising when you see Putin suddenly dip into uh, thanking everyone uh, across Russian society for, for basically solidarity, for coming together in support of the war. Um, in a sense, I think there's a sense that he really is trying to show 
that, that this fight uh, continues with, with, uh, with the backing of the Russian people. And so we saw him one time and time again say that, you know, we're going to pledge families, uh, help to the military families, we're going to build schools, we're going to revive our society. And also, finally, that, that essentially sanctions had failed, that uh, despite all these Western sanctions trying to tame Russia and, and really kind of cut into its war, uh, making pay capabilities, that Russia was still uh, thriving. Now, the speech comes just hours before President Biden gives an address in Poland that will have a very different message. Um, it also comes just a day after his surprise trip to Kiev. What was the reaction in Moscow? Yeah, you know, in Moscow, it really was seen uh, as both provocative in the sense that you had, of course, the president of the United States in Kiev, but also an affirmation, you know, that in Ukraine, uh, Russia is fundamentally engaged in a proxy war with the U.S. Uh, they've always presented uh, the U.S. as really the person to deal with if you want to find some kind of solution to this crisis. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thanks so much, Charles. Thank you. The many people listening to Russia's president included Sergei Radchenko, a professor of history at Johns Hopkins University, who studies Russia and joins us today from Italy. Welcome back to the program. Morning to you. What did you make of Putin's speech? Well, the speech had a, a part of it that was facing internally and part that was facing externally. Uh, Charles just mentioned that emphasis on, uh, on, on the unity of the Russian people uh, in favor of the war, etc., etc. But he also talked about how the state will support the veterans of the conflict, uh, how uh, they will be reintegrated into the society. And there was also a very interesting part directed at the, at the oligarchs, whom he sort of laughed about that they hoped that their assets would not be confiscated from them and now see what happened. So they should just come back to Russia and be more patriotic. And I think that part was was directed at the Russian audience uh, because that would necessarily be uh, popular with the Russians. But the external part, um, uh, Charles mentioned uh, at the end, was of course yeah. about uh, suspending Russia's participation in the New START treaty, which I think is a very, very serious development. A couple of things to follow up on there. When you said his remark about the oligarchs somewhat mocking them for leaving the country, we're talking about wealthy Russians who, uh, in fact, were driven out or perhaps for their own safety have had to leave the country, right? Well, he is talking about uh, Russian oligarchs being sanctioned in the West. He's basically ah. saying, well, they hope that they would not they would not be sanctioned and now they are losing their money. Uh, isn't that funny how they're losing their yachts, etc. So why don't they come back to Russia and be more patriotic? That is that is the kind of message that a lot of Russians will applaud. Oh, because it's uh, populist. But let me ask about of that also. Absolutely. When when he thanks everyone for their solidarity. Is he describing what's really happening in Russia or asking and hoping that everyone is really behind him still? Well, he is hoping that everyone is behind him. Uh, he did say that there was a, you know, overwhelming support for, for the war or special military operation, as he calls it. And what's interesting as well is he did not provide an end game. He's basically saying here, we will continue. We will continue until we fulfill our aims, uh, step by step, uh, carefully and consistently is what he said. But there was no end game. Was there any response to far-right Russian nationalists who have openly criticized the war in recent months? No, there was nothing uh, to this effect. In fact, he completely skipped any kind of uh, mention of potential conflict within the Russian society or within the ru ruling elite, but nor was this expected. You know, his purpose was to project this uh, unity, strength, etc., etc. He claimed that Russian economy is doing fabulously well and will now, you know, uh, proceed to new heights. Okay, well, he can say that, I suppose. But you mentioned something else that you said was quite serious. 
that Russia is suspending participation in the New START nuclear arms treaty. Um, do we suppose that the Russian government has lined up a list of responses on hand for various things the United States would do, and this is today's response? I think this is probably the response. I mean, what this effectively means is the end of the nuclear arms control regime, because, you know, what does it mean to suspend participation? Effectively, it means quitting the treaty, although maybe te technically not. Um, so that is that uh, opens up a, a potential for a new nuclear arms race. But is Russia prepared for it? That is my question. You know, uh, of course, this this is a big question for nuclear stability. Uh, but I'm worried whether Putin is shooting himself in the foot here. He usually does. Uh, you, he usually does shoot himself in the foot. You're saying. Well, I suppose that does raise a question because it is said that it is better for nuclear powers to be talking than not talking, that just the act of talking uh, can lower tensions? Are they just, is, is this a sign of danger for that reason? I think I think so. It is very important to continue this conversation, force in you know for strategic stability. We haven't seen much uh, in this area in recent months because of the war, uh, so I am worried about it. I mean, this uh, the, the danger of escalation remains, and I think uh, that's something that we should all be should all be worried about. Sergey Redchenko from Johns Hopkins University. Thanks very much for your analysis once again. Thanks for having me. Since the pandemic began, workplace trends like the great resignation, quiet quitting, and heightened burnout have highlighted the connection between work and well-being. So how can you improve the connections at work that can lead to greater happiness? NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has some insights. Decades of research show that warm human connections are essential for people's health and well-being. Dr. Robert Waldinger is a psychiatrist at Harvard and directs one of the longest-running studies on what makes people thrive. The people who had the warmest connections with other people weren't just happier, they stayed healthier longer and they lived longer. The results of that study, which has followed people over a couple of generations, are the subject of Waldinger's new book, The Good Life. We get little hits of well-being, if you will, from all kinds of relationships, from friends, family, work colleagues. All of that seems to affirm our belonging, seems to affirm that we are seen and recognized by others. And the best way to build that sense of connection and belonging at work starts with small steps. For example, Waldinger says, think of a colleague you haven't seen in a while. You could send them a text or send them an email or even call them on the phone and just say, hi, I was thinking of you and wanted to connect. Those small actions, he says, often bring little doses of happiness. What we know with strengthening your relationships is that very tiny steps can lead to responses that will make you feel good. And if you want to make new friends at work, Waldinger suggests leaning into your curiosity about your colleagues. So you could, for example, decide just to notice something about somebody else at work who you'd like to get to know. Notice something they're displaying on their desk that might be personal. And ask them about it. Because one of the things we know is that when we are curious about someone in a friendly way, it's flattering, and it engages people in conversation. These conversations, he says, can lead to deeper connections and friendships. 
But he adds, leaders in workplaces have a big role to play too in fostering a culture of connection and belonging. You need leaders to say, being personal with each other is valuable, it matters, and it starts at the top. When that happens, the culture can shift in a company where people tend to know each other better and then care about each other. And that can go a long way in creating a happier, more engaged workplace. Read the Chatterjee and PR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Supreme Court takes up the issue this week of whether Internet platforms should be shielded from being sued for material that appears on their sites. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. A former U.S. Marine turned frontline humanitarian medic was killed by a Russian missile this month in Ukraine. He was very happy to be going over, and one of the things that he said is, I'm excited to prove my worth again. He chose to go to the hottest spot on the front line. This is the thing to admire. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We remember Pete Reed on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Today at the State House, there will be a ceremony honoring those who fought in the Battle of Iwo Jima. That World War II battle began on this week in 1945. It was a key turning point in the war in the Pacific and, of course, led to the famous photograph of the American flag being raised. Iwo Jima Day on Beacon Hill is an annual event celebrating veterans who fought in the battle whose numbers are shrinking. Shrinking. A chance of snow and rain early this morning. No accumulation is expected. It should become all rain by mid-morning, otherwise cloudy with a high near 38. Tonight, more rain and a low around 32. Tomorrow, cloudy and a high near 44. Rain and snow possible Wednesday night. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The Supreme Court hears arguments in two cases this week that challenge the laws for Internet companies. 
Way back in the 1990s, Congress gave Internet firms some immunity from being sued for things that people did on their platforms. This law came before the big explosion of social media in more recent years, but it has come to protect many companies from the kind of responsibility that a traditional publisher might face. This week's cases asked the court to eliminate some or all of those protections. Why? Here's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Major breaking news tonight. The city of Paris under attack over a... It's a very disturbing situation and uh, as heartbreaking as the number... In November 2015, ISIS terrorists carried out coordinated attacks across Paris, killing 130 people and injuring 400. Among the dead was Noemi Gonzalez, a 23-year-old American studying abroad. The first person in her large family to graduate from college, she was gunned down by terrorists who fired into a cafe full of diners. Since then, her family has pursued a case against YouTube, which is owned by Google. The suit alleges that the company, by recommending ISIS videos posted online, aided and abetted in Noemi's death. Nothing is going to give me back my daughter. Noemi's mother, Beatrice. Because if there is something that it can be change, a good thing can come out of all this tragedy. The change she and others want would be something of an earthquake in the law as it now stands. At the center of the case is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, passed by Congress in 1996, when Internet platforms were just beginning. In just 26 words, Section 230 drew a distinction between interactive computer service providers and other purveyors of information, like mainstream media companies. Whereas newspapers and broadcasters can be sued for defamation and other wrongful conduct, Section 230 says that websites are not publishers or speakers and cannot be sued for material that appears on those sites. Essentially, the law treats web platforms the way it treats the telephone. And just like phone companies, websites that are host to speakers cannot be sued for what the speakers say or do. Bottom line, for more than 25 years, the lower courts have uniformly interpreted Section 230 to mean that social media companies are immune from being sued for civil damages over most material that appears on their platforms violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. This week's cases attempt to thread that needle. The Gonzalez family contends that Google, Twitter, Facebook, and other social media companies aided and abetted violations of the Anti-Terrorism Act. They allege that the companies did more than simply provide platforms for communications. Rather, they contend that by recommending ISIS videos to those who might be interested, they were seeking to get more viewers and increase their ad revenue. Lawyer Eric Schnapper, who represents the families, notes that when Section 230 was enacted, the economic model for social media companies was to get subscribers. But today, the economic model is very different. Now, most of the money is made by advertisements, and social media companies make more money the longer you're online. One way to do that, he says, is by algorithms that recommend other related material to keep users online longer. What's more, he contends that social media executives knew the dangers of what they were doing. In 2016, he says they met with high government officials who told them of those dangers posed by ISIS videos and how they were used to recruit people for terrorist attacks. The attorney general, the director of the FBI, the director of national intelligence, and 
the White House chief of staff. Those government officials told them exactly that. Google General Counsel Halima Delane Prado vehemently denies any such wrongdoing. We believe there's no place for extremist content on any of our products or platforms. And we've actually heavily invested in human review to actually make sure that that happens, as well as using smart detection technology. Now, over the years, that has improved to allow us to quickly detect, review, remove content from known terrorists or designated terrorist organizations. Prado acknowledges that social media companies today are nothing like the social media companies of 1996, when the interactive Internet was an infant industry. But she says any change in the law is something that should be done by Congress, not the courts. Daniel Weitzner, the director of MIT's Internet Policy Research Initiative, helped draft Section 230 and get it passed in 1996. Congress had a really clear choice in its mind. Was the Internet going to be like the broadcast media that were pretty highly regulated? Or was the Internet going to be like the town square or the printing press? And Congress chose the town square and the printing press. The Supreme Court now really is at a moment where it could dramatically limit the diversity of speech that the Internet enables. Columbia law professor Timothy Wu summarizes the Biden administration's position this way. It is one thing to be more passively presenting, even organizing information. But when you cross the line into actively recommending content, uh, you leave behind the protections of Section 230. In short, hyperlinks grouping content together, sorting through billions of pieces of data for search engines, that sort of thing is okay. But actually recommending content that shows or urges illegal conduct is another. If the Supreme Court were to adopt that position, it would be very threatening to the economic model of social media companies today. And it likely would mean that these companies would constantly be defending their conduct in court. But filing suit and getting over the hurdle of showing enough evidence to justify a trial are two very different things. And the Supreme Court has in recent years made it much more difficult to jump that hurdle. The second case that the court hears this week deals with just that problem. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, U.S. politicians are debating how to get Mexico to help stop the flow of fentanyl north. And police in Los Angeles have arrested the husband of a housekeeper who worked in the home of a Catholic bishop who was found fatally shot. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The nation's highest court this week considers two cases involving how much, if any, legal protection should be afforded Internet platforms for the content posted on their sites. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. What makes this week's cases so remarkable is that the Supreme Court has never examined the legal shield that the lower courts have unanimously said Congress granted to the industry. The fact that the justices have agreed to hear the cases shows they have concerns. Justice Clarence Thomas has been outspoken about his view that the law should be narrowly interpreted, meaning little protection for social media companies. But the views of the other justices are something of a black box. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. A suspect is now in custody in the fatal shooting of Bishop David O'Connell of Los Angeles. L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna described the arrest of Carlos Medina. Our priority before 8 a.m. this morning was to apprehend this suspect, and we did uh, by some amazing detective work. Our next priority is to get him prosecuted. Medina is the husband of Bishop O'Connell's housekeeper. A motive is not yet known. Wall Street Dow futures are off roughly 330 points. Global shares have been mixed today amid concerns about geopolitical instability coming from Russia and from North Korea. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Deaths from COVID in Black and Hispanic communities in Massachusetts are going down. New research from the Boston Globe and the BU School of Public Health shows that access to vaccinations and COVID care are keeping deaths down. Researchers say that's a change from the start of the pandemic. Back then, Black and Hispanic people were dying at higher rates from working on the front lines. Members of the Massachusetts National Guard are in Kenya this week. Guard officials say the group is there for military exercises. Guard members are working with Kenyan officials for humanitarian aid and crisis preparation. Mass National Guard members have been working with Kenya since 2015. Researchers say they are encouraged that a tiny wasp is helping to control populations of the emerald ash borer. That invasive pest has killed tens of millions of ash trees nationwide and caused millions of dollars in damage. Back in 2013, scientists began controlled releases of non-native wasps that prey on the emerald ash borer in Connecticut and Massachusetts. Claire Rutledge is with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. She says field tests show the wasps appear to be sticking around and spreading. You know, so I'm really, you know, cautiously optimistic. The problem with biocontrol is it's going to be 10 or 15 years later when we see how much of a resurgence the ash manages. She says despite the success, it will be a while before big healthy ash trees return to New England. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. The Bruins stopped the Ottawa Senators yesterday 3-1 to at the Garden. The Bees will begin a four-game Western road trip on Thursday. That's when they'll visit the Seattle Kraken. A chance of snow for the next few hours with no accumulation expected. Then showers are likely through early afternoon. Clouds and patchy fog in the late afternoon. Temperatures will rise to a high in the upper 30s. Tonight, more rain and fog possible with temperatures falling to the low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy and a high in the low 40s. There's a good chance of a rain-snow mix on Wednesday night. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 833. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskip. And I'm Leila Falden. Fentanyl is killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. The synthetic opioid is now a leading cause of death for young people. And as NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports, many experts believe keeping it off American streets is impossible. Over the last couple weeks, fentanyl exploded to the top of the agenda in Washington. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border. You cannot tell us this border is secure when now there is enough fentanyl in this country to kill every single American more than 20 times over. McCarthy and other Republicans first politicized the fentanyl crisis during the midterms. They falsely linked drug smuggling with undocumented migrants. Now Democrats, too, are calling on the Biden administration to do more to pressure Mexico. Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey chaired a foreign relations committee hearing on fentanyl last week. I just think that we work with our Mexican friends with kid gloves on this issue. And I just is fundamentally wrong. I don't know how many more lives have to be lost uh, for Mexico to get engaged. During that hearing, Ann Milgram, head of the Drug Enforcement Administration, agreed the danger posed by fentanyl trafficking is unprecedented. It is why DEA has made defeating those two cartels our top operational priority. But drug policy experts interviewed by NPR say these ideas, pressuring Mexico, further securing the border, defeating the cartels, are unrealistic and won't do much to stop fentanyl traffickers. For one thing, the Mexican government is simply too weak to take on the cartels, no matter how much diplomatic pressure Washington applies. Arturo Saracan was Mexico's ambassador to the U.S. There's no doubt that endemic corruption, impunity, a weak rule of law are Mexico's Achilles heels. That means fentanyl and methamphetamine labs operate in Mexico with almost no pressure. The first time the U.S. can do anything about these drugs is when they cross the border, almost always passing through official checkpoints hidden in cars or commercial trucks driven by American citizens. Van de Brown, an expert on the Mexican cartels at the Brookings Institution, says while Washington talks tough, the cartels are actually growing stronger. They govern territories, people, economies, and in fact, they also govern even institutions. Dramatic levels of corruption and dramatic levels of infiltration of the cartels into judicial and law enforcement institutions in Mexico. During the Trump era, Mexico backed away from almost all drug war partnerships with the U.S. At last week's Senate hearing, the DEA's Ann Milgram said there's so little cooperation, her agents can't take down fentanyl labs or even get good intel from Mexican cops. We are not getting information on fentanyl seizures. We are not getting information on seizures of precursor chemicals. Milgram mentioned precursor chemicals, and this is another reason experts say stopping fentanyl is nearly impossible. Chemicals used to make fentanyl come from China. But following diplomatic disputes with the U.S., the Chinese government, the PRC, also halted drug fighting collaborations. Dr. Rahul Gupta heads the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. 
Rather than demonstrate global leadership by engaging in efforts to rein in illicit precursor production and trafficking, the PRC is instead choosing to not engage. Even if China and Mexico were willing or able to help fight the cartels, stopping fentanyl smugglers would be incredibly difficult. Fentanyl is cheap and easy to make, and it can be smuggled in tiny packages that are hard to spot. The U.S. is actually seizing record amounts of fentanyl in drug busts, but the cartels just make more. Congressman David Trone, a Democrat from Maryland, co-chaired a bipartisan commission that studied fentanyl trafficking. My belief is there's absolutely no way to stop it. If we could, you know, do major raids in Mexico with our military, it's not our country. It's their country. They've chosen not to go after the drug traffickers. Trone believes the U.S. fighting an actual war against the cartels inside Mexico would destabilize a neighboring country in much the way U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq destabilized those nations. But Trone doesn't think the fentanyl crisis is hopeless. He says a promising strategy is to focus on reducing American hunger for drugs. That's the only chance we've got without the Mexican government's help, without the Chinese government's help. We can't win. So we got to go on the demand side work on all the things on education, work on treatment, work on prevention. Most drug policy experts agree the public health model is a more promising way to save American lives. But they also say public fears about fentanyl will likely raise political pressure in Washington for a tough response on the border, whether it's effective or not. Brian Mann, NPR News. Police in Los Angeles arrested a suspect in the killing of Catholic Bishop David O'Connell. O'Connell was 69 and was found shot to death at his home in an L.A. suburb on Saturday. His community remembers a priest who helped immigrants and the poor and who was a peacemaker in violent neighborhoods. Here's NPR's Adrian Florido. Bishop David O'Connell was late for a meeting on Saturday. A deacon went to his house to check on him. He found the bishop in his bedroom, dead from a gunshot wound. Yesterday, L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna said officers had arrested Carlos Medina, who's married to the bishop's housekeeper. And the suspect had previously done work around the bishop's residence. Luna said detectives used surveillance video and a call from a tipster to identify Medina as the suspect. Detectives were told by the tipster that they were concerned because Medina was acting strange, irrational, and made comments about the bishop owing him money. The sheriff said that claim hasn't been confirmed. Police arrested Medina at his home yesterday and found two guns that are being tested. The investigation is ongoing. Bishop O'Connell's killing has shaken Los Angeles's large Catholic community. Born and educated in Ireland, he was ordained to be a priest in the L.A. Archdiocese in 1979. Over the decades, he served at churches across the county, A lot of his work was in South Los Angeles, where he worked to broker peace between rival gangs. And he had the ability to walk the streets everywhere he went. This is State Senator Bob Archuleta. When the gang units were ready to fight, Father was there. The bishop was there. It's a calling, and he answered that calling. In 2015, Pope Francis named O'Connell one of the five auxiliary bishops supporting L.A.'s archbishop. He was a vocal supporter of immigrant rights who spoke Spanish with an Irish accent. And he was funny, peppering his sermons with jokes, like when he spoke to a congregation about the emotional toll of the pandemic. I was on a Zoom call with people in the Archdiocese last summer. And I said, uh, we're all all a bit traumatized. People are easily triggered. 
People get mad at each other, blaming each other, condemning each other, canceling each other. And that's just the American bishops. <laughs> L.A. Archbishop Jose Gomez remembered O'Connell as a good priest, holding back tears yesterday. He said Los Angeles Catholics were sorry to lose him. Adrian Florido, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we learn about efforts by a nonprofit in Boston's Chinatown to buy up properties in order to keep them affordable. Winter weather returns today. Snow showers possible for another hour or so, but not enough for any accumulation. Then rain likely mid-morning into early afternoon. After that, cloudy with temperatures in the upper 30s. Tonight, a good chance of more rain. It'll be in the low 30s. Tomorrow, clouds move in throughout the day and we'll have temperatures in the low 40s. Snow and rain possible Wednesday night. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at loomissales.com. Now in business news, Boston-based Bain & Company says it has a new alliance with OpenAI. That's the maker of ChatGPT, the interactive chat bot that can write anything from computer code to poetry. Bain says the partnership will help its clients harness the full potential of artificial intelligence. Stop and Shop is hosting career fairs at all its Northeast stores this Saturday. The Quincy-based grocery chain says anyone who wants a job can show up for an on-the-spot interview. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is W.B. Moore's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Chinatown has one of Boston's most competitive real estate markets. Advocates say the neighborhood needs more affordable housing if it's going to continue being a home for working class and immigrant residents. As W.B. Moore's Simone Rios reports, they hope an alternative model of land ownership helps them get there. Tiny brick row houses cram two full city blocks just south of downtown Boston. They're reminiscent of a bygone time when waves of new immigrants settled in the area. First Syrian, Jewish, and Irish families, and later Chinese workers. Back in the day, there were maybe, you know, there were hundreds of immigrant families living in these small properties. Lydia Lowe is a longtime community organizer in what's now known as Chinatown. This isn't the bustling Chinatown of restaurants and tea shops that most people know. It's the quieter residential part. And this whole area, because it was like landfills, it was kind of stinky, Um, it was also near a rail yard, it was very undesirable at the time. And so the only people who would live here were the immigrants. It would have been hard to imagine in the 1800s how these row houses would become prime real estate. But the proximity to downtown Boston and the white-hot housing market turned even the most distressed properties into little gold mines. Fearing the row houses would be lost to redevelopment, a group of activists got together in 2015. They formed the Chinatown Community Land Trust. That's a type of nonprofit that acquires properties with the goal of keeping them affordable. 
The first place they wanted to purchase was a three-unit row house at 29 Oak Street. Lowe recalls they had to scrape together $1.7 million to compete with investors and buy the property. We had to show that this was possible because nobody believed us. So this is Boston's first community land trust condo. It means that we own the land and then the unit owners own their own unit. 600 people applied to buy the condos. Among them was Eddie Hickey, who snagged a ground floor unit with a nice area out back. This is the backyard, you can kind of see. There's a little garden area over here, um, some raised planters. Hickey says getting into the community land trust was like winning the lottery. He paid $167,000 for the one-bedroom condo. That's less than a third of what it was appraised for. The only catch is that if he sells, there's a cap on how much he can list it for. But Hickey says that's a fair trade-off for being able to buy a condo. Realistically, I would have either rented for the rest of my life or left the city. Those are kind of the, the two options. I don't think I'm alone in that. I have a lot of friends that are, that's kind of where they're at. They're like, do I, do I leave or do I keep renting? One of Hickey's neighbors is Maidan Lin, a 32-year-old server at a restaurant in Chinatown. Living with her husband and two kids, she says they were sharing an apartment with another family at the height of COVID. But then her family got a condo through the land trust. Speaking through an interpreter, Lin says being a homeowner has stabilized her family's life in Chinatown. There is no worrying about rent. And also, we have been accommodating to the lives in Chinatown. And moving somewhere else would be a big culture shock. The Chinatown Community Land Trust now has two properties and is pursuing two more. But it's hard for a nonprofit to acquire properties in such an expensive part of town. It relies on city subsidies, loans, and donations from people who support the work. The model dates back half a century, developed in part at a nonprofit in Western Mass, the Schumacher Center for New Economics. Co-founder Susan Witt says at their core, community land trusts seek to rein in the cost of land so it can be used to house people rather than generate profit. We're moving land out of the market, not to the state, but into regionally organized, democratically structured nonprofits. According to the Schumacher Center, Massachusetts is home to 16 community land trusts, from Lawrence to Great Barrington, with more than a third sprouting up over the last decade. An old triple-decker in Dorchester is the most recent acquisition of the recently formed Boston Neighborhood Community Land Trust. The trust already owns 30 units in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan. Executive Director Meredith Levy says the aim is to preserve rental housing in areas hard hit by foreclosures, gentrification, and evictions. We keep seeing the same problem. People cannot afford to live in their homes, and so they're getting pushed out and they're having to leave the city. Levy says a key challenge is how to scale up the community land trust model. The easiest way would be through massive government subsidies, but that's a tall order. Neither the state nor the federal government are funding them, and cities like Boston only have so much money for affordable housing. Levy says even on a tiny scale, land trusts can make a world of difference to the people who live there. It's kind of like thinking about housing as the commons, the way we think about public water or parks or libraries. Like housing is something that should be a right and something that people don't have to worry about. 
And once the stress of unstable housing is gone, Levy says people can focus on other things, like their kids' education and building their own careers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Scott Tong is here in studio to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Scott. Rupa, good to see you in person. Nice How to are see you. you? Today on the show, we're going to talk about Vladimir Putin, who today announced that Moscow is suspending its participation in the last arms control treaty between Russia and the United States. That treaty limited intercontinental ballistic missiles. We'll discuss the implications of that. Can YouTube be held liable for Islamic State ISIS videos on its site? The father of a young American woman killed in an ISIS attack in Paris is bringing a case that is before the U.S. Supreme Court today. Mm -hmm. And so we'll talk about that. The struggles of the plant-based meat industry and what's going on there. And a plug for an event tonight in our live space, City Space. I'll be in conversation with Brian Stelter, uh, former host of CNN's Reliable Sources. We're going to talk about the news media, new revelations about Fox News Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Tickets are available. That's very interesting. I'll be watching. He had a very interesting final episode of... uh his show. He did, yeah, which ended abruptly, yep. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Scott. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. The Supreme Court today hears a case that might lead to a sweeping overhaul of cyberspace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where researchers seek new breakthroughs inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. DanaFarber.org slash stories. I'm David Brancaccio. The online world as we know it in America exists because of a law that shields Internet companies from responsibility for much of what is said or done by online users. The Supreme Court today hears a case challenging that immunity. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. And David, the Internet companies are arguing that this case is an existential threat. But on the other side of it, the argument is that tech giants need to take more responsibility for what's being posted on their platforms. The case being argued today is brought by the family of Noemi Gonzalez, an American college student who was killed in a terrorist attack in Paris. And what the Gonzalez family is arguing is that YouTube's recommendation engine surfaced up extremist videos and that helped indoctrinate and radicalize people. And by putting forth recommendations of videos, they say YouTube was engaging in a form of speech, not just passing along content others made. Now, this is an important distinction because Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is what's being considered here, and it protects tech companies from what users publish, but it says nothing about speech that the tech companies themselves engage in. No protection there. So if algorithmic recommendations are a form of speech, that would chip away at Section 230 protections. The justices will hear a separate but related case tomorrow. 
That's right. And that case is against Twitter, and it's brought by the family of another victim of a terrorist attack. And here the question isn't what Twitter did, but what it failed to do. What the justices are looking at is, can Twitter be said to be aiding and abetting a terrorist organization if it doesn't act fast enough to remove terrorist posts? So the justices are looking at Section 230 from two different angles, David. Marketplace's Nova Safo, thank you. There's a big sociology meets workplace test going on in Britain. 61 British companies have been experimenting with a four-day work week. The update now is that four days is working so well, almost all are sticking with it. The BBC's Emma Simpson has some details. 61 companies from a local fish and chip shop and a brewery to software developers and recruitment firms took part in this big experiment, shortening workers' hours for no loss in pay. Each firm managed it in their own way. Organisers say the vast majority of companies were satisfied with their business performance, with 23 finding their revenues had broadly stayed the same. The biggest benefits were to staff well-being. Sick days were down by more than two-thirds and workers reporting being less stressed, less tired and overall happier. Emma Thompson is with our partners at the BBC. Checking my financial screens here, S&P and Dow futures are down nine-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down one percent. Walmart's holiday quarter results were better than expected. There was a somber tinge to Walmart's outlook for this year. The stock is down 2.7 percent pre-market. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Baird, dedicated to attracting and retaining talent from across the financial industry, providing stability and continuity for client relationships. More information at BairdDifference.com. Let's talk now about big financial moments. You may know the work of Jill Schlesinger, business analyst for CBS News and a certified financial planner. Her new book, The Great Money Reset, offers a way to think about the big money stuff are we really buying a house now or really quitting the rat race to make less money in return for more time for ourselves or paying for a health disaster? We got Jill on the line here. Great to have you. It is awesome to be with you. We're taught grown-up way to deal with this is to save and save and save. Then you have a nest egg and you can then do your new thing. But you think about planning for these milestones in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I think that milestones are wonderful, but then life happens. And I'll give you the best example that literally just happened to me. I had a guy who contacted me through my podcast, saving for a while. Now in his mid forties, he and his wife have been excellent savers. They have two young children and his four-year-old child diagnosed with lymphoma Mm. and it's blowing up their entire lives. And while that is the most extreme case The less extreme case is that you might change or maybe something comes from left field that encourages you to maybe say, is this actually the way I want to continue living? And is there something different for me? So how do we think about setting ourselves up to be ready when we want to change or life forces us to change? Step one, calculate the resources at your disposal. Step two, calculate your debt. Step three, consider your housing situation. The fourth step, and I spend an entire extra chapter on this, is considering your spending habits, but this is really exposing yourself. And you know what's funny about it? It's not so much that it stinks to have to list out all the things you spend money on, but what happens is you almost get embarrassed. Don't make a judgment about it. Just list it out. Jill, I will try on that particular point. We're pretty economical in the household, except I didn't want to look at the list of the restaurant meals, right? Really? We had to go out that often? 
You know what? The reason why you should put aside the value judgment is like you are where you are. You will have choices later about whether you wish to continue those spending patterns or not. I think the other part that I think is incredibly important is what kind of promises or obligations did you make to others? It's hard, though. You know, this week and next month seems super clear to human beings, and the future seems almost always out of focus and hazy. I worry that sometimes we get trapped by that hope and that dream of what the future is. It may be working out well for a few years or five years or 10 years, but it may be that actually you cannot do what you are doing anymore. I would hope that part of the idea of having a great money reset is that you do have the ability to change. Jill Schlesinger is business analyst for CBS News. And unlike so many people who report on money, she is also a certified financial planner. The book is called The Great Money Reset. Change your work, change your wealth, change your life. Jill, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. And the podcast mentioned is Jill on Money. And while there's debate in Washington about long-term problems with Social Security accounting, the agency is still paying what is promised. Separately, though, the agency is not offering the level of service recipients might expect. Despite a nearly $800 million increase in its budget, the acting head of Social Security has written members of Congress that she expects help over the phone will get worse this year and disability claims could still run behind. The Washington Post got a hold of the letter sent earlier this month. It's about working through backlogs and persistent trouble hiring staff. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're seeing some snow and fog at this hour. That should become rain soon. It'll be near 40 today. We'll get a brief break from the rain this afternoon before it returns this evening. It'll be in the low 30s. Right now, it's 36 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. A former U.S. Marine turned frontline humanitarian medic was killed by a Russian missile this month in Ukraine. He was very happy to be going over, and one of the things that he said is, I'm excited to prove my worth again. He chose to go to the hottest spot on the front line. This is the thing to admire. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We remember Pete Reed on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.